This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see everybody here tonight. It's been a little while. We're going to continue the Revelation study and uh, this particular one that I had planned. I titled it The Coming of the Son of Man because we're going to be looking at uh, chapter one takes a little bit longer than some parts of the book will because there's a lot of small little things wrapped up in little verses that introduce the concepts. And tonight we're going to look at verses five through eight. So I want to go ahead and... uh, Read that really quickly here. Revelations 1, 5 through 8 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, and to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. We're going to be looking at what this says about Jesus tonight, the Son of Man. We're told that he's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, and he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. And To start with, I want to point out that a witness in this context is a martyr, a record, or witness. Now, I came across one commentary that made the remarks that we shouldn't consider Jesus as a martyr because a martyr, the definition of that is someone who's killed for his religious beliefs, and that's not really why Jesus was killed. They say that, you know, the the reason Jesus was killed is because God commanded it and Jesus assented to it. That is both true and false, though, and it's kind of splitting hairs over a definition because, you see, Jesus did, in fact, die. And it was because, for lack of a better term, his religious beliefs. But it was decided by God that it was going to be so. So God foreknew it. God foreordained it. Jesus assented to it. He did die, and he died specifically for what he had to say about religion to the religious establishment of that day. So Jesus is a martyr. And martyr fits into the definition of witness. Uh, And I just want to point out both things are true. So I guess I need to find the right clicker here. The uh, Merriam-Webster defines witness as the following. So it's an attestation of a fact or event, a testimony. One that gives evidence, specifically one who testifies in a cause or before a judicial tribunal. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but I want to point out that Jesus fits this definition perfectly. His death on the cross confirmed and fulfilled Scripture like what we see in Isaiah chapter 53. And in that prophecy, Isaiah predicted very specific things that were going to happen that would uh, identify the Messiah. It was, uh, it was, you know, the path of the entire world and what was going to happen and how the Messiah was going to surprisingly be slain for his people. And Jesus' presence on that cross and during those very things attested that this prophecy was indeed a factual event. There was a lot of things up to Jesus' point that had not been fulfilled. People speculated as to what they might mean. 
Over 400 years had passed and there had been no prophetic message from God. And you can imagine it that at this point, people might have been beginning to lose hope. They might have been beginning to doubt the word. Doubtless, we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were taking advantage of this ignorance and they were using Scripture as a means to exert power over the populace. And then Jesus came along and He affirmed those Scriptures. And, you know, as you look at passages about Jesus, and the reason why I'm focusing on it tonight is, isn't it, sometimes true that we consider him kind of a first principle of our faith and so we kind of come to a point where we're like well i think about that on some level every day i really don't need to go into it a whole lot and we end up not doing justice to what's being said and as a result that is often unintended we don't always uh, share the gospel in the same way that we might because we're not necessarily constantly dwelling on digging into and studying the most important thing of our faith and that is who Jesus was, what he did, and why he has the titles that he does. You know, Jesus had a trial. And on the night of his arrest, he was brought before Annas, who was the previous high priest, Caiaphas, who was the high priest appointed for that year, and an assembly of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin. It was kind of like a religious congress. You can see all this in John 18, verses 19 through 24, Matthew 26, verse 57. And then after that, he was taken out of Jewish hands and he went before Pilate, the Roman governor. You can see that in John 18, 28. Then he was sent off to Herod, the king, Luke 23, verse 7. And then he was returned again to Pilate, Luke 23, 11 through 12. And Pilate then eventually, finally, sentenced him to death. So there were six parts to Jesus' trial. There were three stages in religious court with the Jews, and then there were three stages in uh, secular court, the Roman court. Jesus, as I said, he was tried before six different separate uh, entities. I know Pilate came into the picture twice, but Pilate never intended Jesus to be sent back to him when he sent him to Herod, so it was an escalation of events. Now, Something to think about here is the trials before the Jewish authorities, these religious trials, they showed the degree to which the Jewish leaders hated Jesus because they carelessly disregarded many of the laws that had to be followed in, in uh, regard to trials. There were several illegalities, in fact. Uh, one, no trial was to be held during uh, a feast time. Two, each member of the court was to vote individually, but all they did was they all just yelled together that, they, uh, that he was guilty by acclamation. Three, if a death penalty was given by them, they had to let a night pass before the sentence was carried out. However, it was just a few hours before Jesus was marched off and placed on the cross from this time. The Jews had no authority to execute anybody. They were under Roman rule. They were not allowed to... To, uh, to do these things. Five, no trial was to be held at night, but this trial was held before dawn in the dark of night. That's the reason why they went after him when he did. You know, Judas was bribed not just to betray Christ, but to betray him at a time when all the masses of his followers were not there. And that happened to be at the Garden of Gethsemane at night. And then six, the accused was to be given counsel, a representation, you know, a defense, a lawyer. He was given nobody. 
He had to defend himself. And then seven, the accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions, but Jesus was asked if he was the Christ or the Messiah. And they did this because they were trying to entrap him. You know, we're, when we're encountered by police or law enforcement, we're told you have the right to remain silent because anything that you say can be twisted and used against you. And that's the unfortunate thing with law and why lawyers have throughout history had a bad reputation because they're paid to twist the law to suit their clients. So if you wanted to attack Jesus, what you wanted to do is to get him to speak. And that's what they did, and they weren't supposed to do that. Now, the trials before the Roman authorities, keep in mind, he's been, they're accusing him of blasphemy, of equating himself with God, of being the Son of God, of being the Messiah. That was what the Jewish people really were upset about. But when they took him before the Roman authorities, before Pilate, it was a little bit different. First of all, Jesus was beaten before he was taken there. The Jews had no right to do that legally. The charges brought against him were that he was inciting people to riot, that he was forbidding people to pay their taxes, and that he was claiming to be a king. And we're not talking about the king as in the Messiah. We're talking about it as in a king to challenge Caesar. You see how duplicitous these people were? They get him to say things that they can use against him, and then they go and they say, what will get under the Roman skin? Because if you remember, whenever they took him before Pilate, Pilate asked a few questions and said, you know, this is a matter for you guys. We're, we're, not, we're not interested in your silly religion. You handle that. So they cooked up these other things, and that's what he was tried for. Well, Pilate, he found no reason to kill Jesus, so he sent him to Herod, passing the buck. And Herod had Jesus ridiculed, but he found no reason to kill him. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. When Herod heard that Jesus was coming to him, I fit picture a somewhat overweight, spoiled, petulant king. We know he was based on what he did to John the Baptist and some other stories. And imagine this glutton. It's just my picture of him. You know, you've seen depictions on, in movies of the fat king with the grease all over his face. That's how I see Herod. Because he got giddy, excited. Oh, Jesus is coming. Maybe he'll perform a miracle for me. I've been wanting to see him. And then when he found out that that wasn't going to happen after he made fun of him, put a robe on him and mocked him, he sent him back to Pilate because he was trying to avoid political liability. You see, he was placed by the Romans as king over the Jews, and the only way that he was able to maintain the peace was to maintain the Jews' favor. So being that he couldn't find anything Jesus was guilty of, he couldn't set him free without infuriating the people he led. So what did he do? He sent him back to the Roman authorities which was Pilate again. Now this was the last trial, the last part of the trial, part six, as Pilate tried to appease the animosity of the Jews by having Jesus scourged. Now the Roman scourge was a terrible whipping that was designed to remove flesh from the back of someone who is uh, being punished. Uh, you may have seen a whip. A whip by itself will lacerate skin, and if you do it enough, it'll break open the skin. But they cut right to the chase, and they put barbs and hooks on the ends of pieces of leather, and it would catch in your skin and just rip chunks of flesh off. This is what they did trying to get the Jews to let Jesus live. Can you imagine to be in a society like that? Where Pilate, such a coward, doesn't want to do the right thing, knows that Jesus is not guilty, so well, why don't we have to kill him? 
by beating him and ripping his body to shreds and then show that to the Jews and maybe that'll sate their bloodlust. But we know that that didn't happen. Imagine Jesus now being trotted out there, having been beaten, mocked, you know, given his robe and sent back and forth to people and spat on and now he's paraded out in front of the Jews and that's not enough. They, as we know, Pilate offered Barabbas to be released, who was, uh, Clint spoke on this not too long ago, he was a riotous uh, murderer. He had murdered during a riot in rebellion against the Romans. Uh, he had every reason to be there legally, and if you remember Clint's lesson, it was talking about, you know, uh, at some point he was talking about there is a, a rightness to submitting to the authority God has placed over you. And Barabbas was wrong for what he had done. Uh, they should have wanted Barabbas to, to be crucified, but instead uh, they, they said not only did they want Barabbas released and Jesus punished, they wanted him crucified, which was the worst type of punishment that could be given. These people were so filled with hate. This is the same kind of hate you see brewing in our society today. Um, this is where it leads, this kind of thing. And I'm not talking about woke nonsense hate. I'm talking about the hate in the human heart that has stirred up our society to the point that it's at. It was bad at the time that Jesus lived. And these trials of Jesus, they represent the ultimate mockery of justice. And Jesus, the most innocent man in the history of the world, was found guilty of crimes and he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. Now you could go on much further about Jesus' crucifixion. That's not my purpose tonight. But as we examine the symbolism of Revelation, we just talked about uh, these six parts to this trial. You know, throughout Revelation, you're going to see symbolism in the number seven being used to represent completeness and perfection because Revelation's about wrapping things up. Um, but here, I was struck by the presence of the number six in the number of trials that Jesus faced. He was before Annas, the former high priest, then Caiaphas, the current high priest, then the Sanhedrin, then Pilate, and Herod, then Pilate. There were six parts. So I just want to quickly look over and show you a little bit about what's said in the study of numerology, what the number six often uh, represents and to the Hebrews in particular. The number six and its meaning is related to man and human weakness, first of all. The evils of the devil and manifestation of sin. Man was created on the sixth day of creation week. Men are appointed six days to labor. A Hebrew slave had to serve six years before he could be released in the seventh. Six years were appointed for the land to be sown and harvested. The number is also associated with Satan and his temptation of Jesus. The bringing together of triple six, 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 which, you know, we talk about later, is the mark of the end time beast power of revelation. The mark of the beast, as you may have heard it called. As such, it represents the very best government system that man can set up while under the influence and, and constant manipulation of Satan. Man's system on this earth is made up of three parts. Let me just put it to you. You've got the economic, you've got the religious, and you've got the governmental, all of which are influenced and led by Satan on this earth. 
Interesting numbers here, when you take 666 and you multiply it by 7, it equals 4,662, which depicts man's total imperfection under Lucifer. When you add that across, it equals 18, and then you divide that by 3, and it equals 6. So I'm not going into a whole big study of that. I just want you to get the idea here that 6 represents man. It represents the imperfection of man. It represents what man does apart from the intervention of God, typically. And you see that in these six parts of how they conducted themselves in giving Jesus his trial. I just find that interesting. As I pointed out, they were laced with corruption, this trial, these six parts. But you know, Jesus had one more trial going on that I have not mentioned yet, and he was in another court, a higher court, and that court was the court of God the Father. The heavenly supreme court, as we might say. Now, some people get the idea that it was the Jews who appealed to the Romans and Pilate, and Jesus was tried, judged, sentenced, and executed by them. So you can blame the Jews and the Romans. They say, well, that's, in a sense, that's true. But the reality is the real judge that Jesus was before was God the Father. And the supreme court that he was in was God's courtroom. Now, if you've ever seen a courtroom, I've got one on the screen there, you may have seen the solemn entry of the judge. They come into the courtroom and everybody says, please rise for honorable judge so-and-so. There is honor afforded to them. There is respect, for they have been deemed the authority and they're the arbiter of justice. They're going to hear the case and their judgment is going to determine the fate of the defendant. And their judgment is usually final as well. The judge strides purposefully in. They sit in the bench there. That term is not used a whole lot. One you may have heard is the stand. And if you see that, it's the witness stand. And this is where witnesses, uh, they stand to give testimony. Sometimes the accused may go to the stand and have to be questioned. Now, in some systems, the, the accused sits in what they call the dock. And... From what happens there, a docket will be formed. That term originated in England. It was recorded in the form, it looks like dogget, but it's dogget, in 1485. And it's been suggested that this term comes from the verb to dock, which is what we're talking about whenever you cut a dog's tail short or a horse's short, you dock it. So what they get is after... The judge sits down and the witnesses all talk and the, tri and, you know, the trial happens. They take all of that and they condense it down into the docket and the judge takes that docket and from that summarized testimony, he renders his decision. That is no small thing. And for many, for many times, that's life or death for whoever is on trial there. Would you like to have your fate summed up in a piece of paper that might be smaller than this book? And yet that's what happens all the time, and we trust that judge to do that. I would be nervous if I were before a court. I've been in situations in the Air Force before where I had to appear before people, and I had my rights read to me even prior to giving testimony in this sort of thing about the consequences for being honest and truthful and all that. And even when you've done nothing wrong, <laughs> you get nervous. 
And just be thinking about the fact that not only was Jesus simultaneously in front of these barbarians who hated him, but he was before God the Father, and God was not there to comfort him. Now turn with, did you know that we have a depiction of what it's like when God enters his courtroom? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, we read verses 9 through 10. It says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. This is a picture of God in his courtroom. Up here is an artist rendering. It's kind of hard to see. It's an artist rendering of what we just read to sort of give you some idea of what you could picture there. And after reading that, I just want you to consider for a minute. Wouldn't you rather face Judge Judy with all her vitriol on TV than face God Almighty? And if you think that Jesus had it easy because this was his father, you are wrong. Imagine that Jesus, who'd never done anything wrong, who's been with God since the beginning, now facing God to be condemned. And, you know, with a criminal, unfortunately for them, they don't get to choose their judge, and neither did Jesus. Jesus had to stand before that judge. He had to see it was his father. And that judge was not cutting his son any slack. Any judge who would do so would be unjust. Psalm 9, verse 8 says, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. God will not sin out of love. He will not be unjust and untrue to his character. Not even for Jesus. And so, the punishment has to fit the crime, as the saying goes. The crime in question was mankind's sin against God. And just like in a courtroom, there are predetermined punishments for certain crimes... Prior to a trial, the judge, judge doesn't just get to assign death to a petty thief, for example. There are rules against cruel and unusual punishment, in fact. The job of the judge is to determine the guilt of the person on trial and then assign an appropriate punishment. And some offenses were worse than others. And in the case of sin, there was already a predetermined punishment for one found guilty of it. Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. There is no getting around it. The wages of sin is death. Who here has sin in their life? Every one of us. And here's Jesus, and for the first time ever, he cannot, or he's not going to at least, say that I, I come bearing no sin. He, he bore every sin that's ever been done. Now imagine how scared you would be to face God without Jesus there. And just take for a minute and, and understand that Jesus took that fear that you don't have to experience and he felt it himself. That's why he's the son of man because he can feel and has experienced the things that we have for us. Aren't you glad that he was in this trial and not you or I? So, the stakes are very high for Jesus, and we have an account of the mood that are of the people who are in attendance in the Ancient of Days courtroom, God's. 
as Jesus stood trial. That's Psalm 76, 8 through 9 up on the board. It says, Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. What happens when God gets ready to judge? Everybody freezes in place and can't speak, can't move a muscle. And that's what happens here. And I just can't imagine that it had to not be just so much more pronounced than normal when it was Jesus that was awaiting judgment. Verse 9 tells us what this trial in which Jesus is both... Uh, verse 9 tells us that this trial in which Jesus is both the defendant and the faithful witness is all about. This is the trial to save the meek of the earth. Who are the meek of the earth? That's those who seek God but are guilty nevertheless. The Bible tells us that the punishment for sin had to be meted out. There was a propitiation, a satisfaction that had to be paid by the world, and that is what Jesus paid. He faithfully took the stand in the courtroom. He testified that he was to take the guilt upon himself, accept my punishment, accept your punishment, indeed the punishment of the whole world all at once, like an avalanche on his shoulders. And that he could bear it, he says. He faced those six trials in front of corrupt human judges. Then he faced a seventh perfect judge to complete the process. You see why the six stood out to me? Remember, the number seven represents the number of completion and perfection. So when you read that Jesus is the faithful witness, going back to our text first, understand that this is what it means. He was a witness, he was a martyr, and he is the record of God's judgment against sin, and he purchased a pardon. Sometimes after a judge renders his judgment, the convicted person is later pardoned, and a pardon is just a release from the legal penalties of an offense. Now, if the punishment is jail time or a large fine, the person whose pardon can be set free or released from that obligation to pay further debt. But the key point is that a pardon comes oftentimes after at least part of the punishment has been served. Well, in the case of death, how do you serve part of death? You don't. If you're killed, you can't be resurrected to life again. We are right now talking about you and I. What is in the books for us without Jesus. Death. And God wants to extend a pardon. Can you or I take it without Jesus? In the case of Jesus, we see something unique in all of history, and this is what makes Jesus so special. I especially want to impress this on the young people. I know you hear it your whole life that Jesus is special, but think for a minute about what he is able to do for you that you cannot. John 10, verse 18, Jesus speaking. He says, no man taketh it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down myself. Now, we might be able to go so far and say that. You're not killing me. I'm doing this of my own accord. But then he says, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So he's going to do it, and God's commanded him to do it, because together they love us so. Let's break this down into our death penalty and pardon analogy. Jesus willingly went to trial to accept the judge's sentence, we said. It was death. There is no doubt he was put to death. He experienced death. He paid the price and endured the punishment for which any man there is no coming back from. He didn't pretend to die, like some people try to say, who deny that he was fully man. 
They say, well, it's just God fooling around pretending to experience death. No, he experienced it. That's what made it so terrible for him. Because death is separation from God with no hope for reconciliation. But he paid that price, he endured the punishment, and having suffered death, well, then God's punishment was fulfilled. But death is permanent, so it's ongoing. And you know what? Understand that what Jesus did when he was resurrected, he, was, he purchased a pardon. God looked at his death, he looked at his sacrifice, and he said, that's good enough. That's so good, in fact, that I'm willing to pardon all sin to anyone who will accept what you just did. And so Jesus has the power to stand in our place. He has the authority given to him to legally accept the punishment for someone else's sin. He did that because the judge allowed it. And I just want you to think for a minute. Jesus did have to die, but he didn't have to stay dead. Isn't that wonderful? It was never preordained that he could not be resurrected. But when you and I die without Jesus, there is um, there's no coming back to a good state from that. Oh, you'll be resurrected to a form you don't like, but it won't be to life. Jesus did something about that. He's the faithful witness. Now, I just want to, I'm sitting here thinking about this. It's hard to, if you really do think about this, it's kind of hard to talk about your Savior and what he did and not, not kind of get lost in your thoughts a little bit if you're, if you're really considering it. The firstborn of the dead, that's the other thing that it says in our text, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, firstborn. To me, that's the key, firstborn, meaning there's going to be more. Colossians, when you read that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead in Colossians 1 verse 18, for example, understand that this is what it means. Jesus is preeminent over all creation. We're told there that Jesus, all things were created through him. All things are sustained by him. Death was overcome by him even. Why? Because he has to have preeminence in all things. You ever think about that, that God wouldn't have been satisfied. Jesus wouldn't have been satisfied if he couldn't say that he had experienced and overcome even death. <laughs> the very curse that Satan brought upon men, God wasn't going to leave it like that. He's going to say, I'm going to not only just brush it aside, no, I'm going to take it, experience it, and I'm going to choke the life out of it through experiencing it. And only he could do that. No one else has that kind of power, and that is how we know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. So it makes perfect sense that no one is more fit to rule as king than he, right? And keep your eye on the text verses because we're going through that verse slowly as we do this. We're told that Jesus is the ruler over kings of the earth. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords because there is no one powerful enough to lord it over him. Hallelujah. You know, I think about Donald Trump right now, and when he was elected, how most of us uh, that supported him were very, very happy. And we thought, here's a guy who's not going to be pushed around. Here's a guy who's going to get some things done. And you know, at the end, 
they still got him. They stopped his progress in many ways. And that was about the best that our pitiful society can produce right now is a Donald Trump. And that's pretty sad. But even he, in a time where people used to say, well, he won because we needed a fighter at that time. We needed somebody who was brash. Maybe we did. But still wasn't enough, was it? Now imagine Jesus. There is nobody who can get the best of him. There is no one that can lord over him. There is no one that can thwart him. He is the firstborn of the dead. His resurrection assures you that you and I, too, will be resurrected. His sacrifice was acceptable to God. That's why, if you don't know, a lot of people think, well, Christmas is the most important Christian holiday. It is not. Easter is considered the most important theological holiday uh, because it shows that, you know, Jesus could have died, but if, it hadn't been, if he hadn't been resurrected, it wouldn't have meant anything. It was when he was resurrected that God gave his stamp of approval and says, I accept what you did. It was, it was good. So, if it helps to, to cement the magnitude of this service, sacrifice, consider your feelings about being told, for example, that you must love someone who is unlovable. If you're married, think about your spouse. If you're a parent, think about your kid. If you're a child, think about your parents. Maybe you think about that friend. Maybe think about that coworker. Just think about the most disgusting, awful human being that you can, the one you feel justified in not loving. And consider that Christ loved us all equally, even them. And then, you know, for us men who are married, he said that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Boy, that is a tall order, isn't it? And you know, that's what marriage is. It is a picture of the relationship that God experiences with us. It's teaching us what it's like for him uh, to be with an adulterous, sinful, unlovable person whom he chooses to love anyway and has spent all of creation showing it to and working this grand plan out. That is what Jesus' sacrifice is all about. So when you read through these verses in chapter 1, I would just encourage you, don't breeze through them and assume that, you, uh, that they're, just, they're too easy to skip over, but there is so much that is there. The titles of Jesus matter, especially here. Jesus, it says something interesting too, makes us kings and priests. Now, one thing that is characteristic of rulers is that the most powerful ones are often shown to shower elaborate gifts on those they're taken with. Esther 5, verse 6, And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted to thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. And then likewise in Mark 6, 21 through 23, And when a convenient day was come, that Herod was on his birthday, made a supper to his lord's high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to thee. And he swore unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it to thee unto half of my kingdom. What is with the half of the kingdom stuff? It just goes to show that there's something that happens in your head, apparently, when you become that rich and powerful, that you see yourself as a benefactor who everybody sees you, there is no limit to your power. That's the whole idea, is you want to give this perception. Well, these kings certainly did not did 
have limits to their power, but Jesus did not. He is no exception, though, in being a king who lavishes rich gifts upon those who have pleased him, upon those whom he loved. We're told in Revelation 1, verse 6, that he has made us kings and priests. Jesus loves us so much and is so magnanimous and rich toward us that resurrecting us from the dead isn't all that he's going to do for us. No, he's enriched us and elevated us before his Father. Now, due to certain early manuscript versions that change the word uh, kings to a kingdom, there are some who feel that this is only saying that Christ has created a kingdom for you and I, but that we're not kings in it. I think John Gill has a much better understanding of this, and I'm going to read to you from his commentary. He says, the words are used in a higher and greater sense. The saints are made kings by Christ. They are so now. They've received a kingdom of grace, which cannot be taken away. And they have the power of kings over sin, Satan, and the world, and all their enemies. The next time you're feeling tempted, remember, you're a king. In regard to your power over Satan and resisting that temptation, that is the level to which Christ has elevated you. And they live in fair like kings. They're clothed like them in rich apparel. What's the rich apparel? Why? It's the righteousness of Christ. And they are attended as kings because we're told that we have angels watching over us. And they will appear much more so hereafter when they shall reign on earth with Christ a thousand years, shall sit upon the same throne and have a crown of life and righteousness given to them, and at last be introduced into the kingdom of glory. And whether you believe in a literal millennial reign or whether you believe in something more symbolic, either way, if you're talking about a church age here or if you're talking about some literal thousand year reign there, it's the same difference. You are a king, elevated to that position by the king of kings, clothed in his righteousness, and nothing can touch you anymore in this world. Christ did that for us because he loved us and he chose to honor us. Now, we became such by being the sons of God, and that power and privilege is received from Christ. So, we are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Christ because we're united to him. Heirs to who? To God. You ever think about that whenever you're out in the world conducting yourself in a way that is unseemly? Maybe ask yourself, am I behaving as a king or a queen or whatever would? Am I portraying the rich estate? Am I getting mud on the robes? Am I selling the crown? We all have to ask ourselves that from time to time because that's the reality of what we are. And that's why being a hypocrite is always so frowned upon because we've been dressed up as an heir to God. Boy, we'd better act like it. We are now his representatives on this earth. That's what it means when it says in our text verse that he has made us kings. Uh, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's novels, the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll remember this idea symbolized in the children who are made kings and queens by Aslan, who's a lion representing Christ. And the reason they were made such is that they had great responsibilities given to them. We are not merely subjects of the kingdom, but we are joint heirs and rulers of it with Christ as king of kings. There's a great deal of responsibility and notice also that we've been declared as kings and priests who we've been declared before. First, to God and His Father. Not to men, 
Not to angels, or at least he didn't stop there, but to the highest, most prominent authority of all. You ever seen a, a young man or a young woman dating a person? And they like them, but there's somebody in their family they won't introduce them to because they know they'll be ashamed or they'll be angry. How would you feel if Christ had told the angels and told everybody, yep, this is my bride, but had neglected to tell God the Father. He's made it so abundantly clear to us. He's elevated us in such a way. That's why it's important to understand. Why does it matter that he's made us kings and queens? I'm a humble guy. I don't want to be a king, to be quite honest with you, but Christ did it. Why is that important? We have to know that. And then it says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This speaks of the glory of Christ's deity and all his offices and Amen, so let it be, and so it shall be. I need to wrap it up here, so we're going to move along to the last couple of pieces here. When you look at Revelation 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This is a promise of future triumph. The triple, the chi you see up there, this is called a triple chi because it says and, and, and. What he's talking about, every, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. The Savior's coming back to take over the earth. This time he's not going to come as the lowly servant, the humble shepherd, or the rejected prophet. This time he will return as king of kings, and the whole world's going to know it. And as a matter of fact, even the dead, the people who denied him, he's going to drag them out of the grave and stand them in front of him, breathe life back into him in some form or fashion, and they will be forced to acknowledge, even them, everybody is going to know. And only then will Philippians 2, 10 through 11 be fulfilled, that on the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That hasn't happened just yet, but it's coming. And then at the end of verse 7, you see, even so, amen. I really like this statement because it reminds us that this is the revelation of Jesus and that he's dictating it to John. And just imagine that John hears all this stuff we've been talking about. And at the end, he's like, like he said, I agree. That's what that means, even so, amen. John is so excited by this. He's so looking forward to it. He's like, yeah, bring it on. I like that. If we, I would just suggest to you that if we don't have that attitude when we think about Christ coming back, if you're fearful of it, uh, if you have some reason why you're not ready for the return of the Lord, um, I would just encourage you to examine your heart. Because there may be some reason that, or some fear that's there that you've not dealt with that you need to. I want to conclude this lesson by reading the last verse of our text. It's verse 8. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Brothers and sisters in Christ, saved and lost alike, I, I know the audience here, but I also know we record these messages, and I'm hoping that there may someday be somebody that hears this. So when I say these closing remarks, understand they're not just for us. Take a moment and absorb these words. Jesus is it. There is no other like him. There is no other way. No man comes to the Father except through him. 
The Word of God is full of the words of Christ. Every book in the Bible, every book points to Him. You don't believe that? Well, Jesus tells you Himself, Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Him. This is likely the first time this had ever happened. After Jesus had been resurrected and He came back and He was discussing Scripture with people for the first time, saying, here it all is. Here I am in every book of the Bible, all the way from Moses to all the prophets, and then by extension, of course, the, the books of the law, the apostles, Jesus himself. Every book you have, every writing that's there is important because it points to Jesus. It builds up to him. It, gives, it explains something about it. He is the only way. He's the only way. Remember that song, Come to Jesus, He will save you, though your sins is crimson glow. If you give your heart to Jesus, He will make it white as snow. Perhaps you have given your heart to Jesus, uh, but it's been hardened. I was just talking to Clint the other day. Sometimes my heart gets hard. It stays that way a lot of the time. Unfortunately, that's the way I am. If you ever see me crying up here, something's wrong. It's just, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that. I was telling Clint the other day, you know, sometimes you have episodes of grief in your life where you kind of wish you could just weep and get it out. Maybe you feel better. And for whatever reason, I can't seem to do that anymore. Maybe the tear ducts are broken. I don't know. But when I hear that song, I don't just think about the person who needs their sins forgiven. I think about the Christian, like maybe myself, who needs their heart worked on, softened a little bit. If you give your heart to Jesus, he will make it white as snow. So we'll leave it there. I hope you found the study beneficial. Uh, we're about to start moving a lot quicker next time that we get together for this particular study. I believe we're going to start on the letters to the churches, and the book's going to start flying by a little bit quicker at that point. So thank you for bearing with me. Uh, if there are any that want to respond to the invitation, come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.